0: can Knock the Shuffle Episode 7. Thank you all so much for the support and the great feedback. I've had such a great time, not just making this show, but seeing people connect and respond to it has been just as rewarding. So if you haven't done so already, please make sure that you comment and that you rate and subscribe to the show and help further amplify the message so more people can hear it. And I'd come back and do it for a second season. All right, enough talk. Here we go. Next episode. Woo! Welcome to Can Knock the Shuffle. I am Sean Kantrowitz. I'm a music producer. I'm a TV producer, the host of a hip hop game show called The Questions, and I'm kind of obsessed with how songs get made. As a fan, I've always noticed that artists typically only get asked about the same handful of songs throughout their entire career. It's always made me wonder, what about the stories behind those lesser known songs, the ones that journalists tend to overlook? And in my experience, Those unheard stories are the ones that the artists really want to talk about anyway. So that's why Can't Knock the Shuffle exists. I take an artist's entire catalog, I put it in a playlist, throw it on shuffle, and then we talk about whichever songs are randomly selected. We take the interview angle out of the equation, and leave it up to the algorithm to dictate which stories get told. This episode's guest is Columbus, Ohio's very own Blueprint. As a guy who himself wears many hats, I have nothing but respect for Prince Plymouth game, as it were. The rapper and producer runs his own label, Weightless Recordings, and he's toured and collaborated with some of the best indie artists in the game for the past two decades. I met Blueprint years ago and helped him get set up with what would turn out to be a recurring string of tours through the state of Florida, where I was living at the time, and I connected with him through our shared sense of humor and appreciation for all things creative and technical. Prince's career success isn't just because he makes good music. He's always been open to adapting and expanding his skill set, as evidenced not just through the evolution of his sound in his catalog throughout the years, but through the other outlets that he's used to express himself, especially recently. He just published his fourth book, The 10 Traits of Successful Hip Hop Artists. He directs music videos and films, and he also hosts his own podcast, Super Duty Tough Work, which also is on the Stony Island Audio Network. All right, enough talk. Let's get to well, I guess more talk. But this time with my guest blueprint. Has the act of hosting a podcast uh, changed the way that you feel now when you do interviews and you are a guest on somebody else's show? Do you have like a new appreciation or, or sense about those things?
1: It's probably the opposite because I don't want to do interviews as much since I talk every week for an hour. I'm like, I'm not doing no interviews, bruh.
0: No. <laughs> all right, cool. Well, I'm glad that the check cleared before this one. So it's, yeah, you know, we really yeah. got you all.
1: Your people called my people. They cleared you, and I was like, you know what? He seems nice. He's got the bag, so I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> podcast Payola.
0: podcast familia, right here on the on the Stony Island uh, network. You are an artist who has uh, a pretty interesting and long catalog. A lot of the artists and people that we've had on the show, it's all about the interesting uh, twists and turns and the different arcs. And you're an artist who has. A, a lot of that. Uh, you have a lot of different chapters and phases. Putting out music for, by my estimation, almost 20 years, like yep. professionally. Yeah. Yep. Right at 20 years. Wow. So let's get into it. I mean, there, there's. I feel like we've we've got some interesting things that the algorithm has selected. Here. And I always love it when randomly we sort of go in order. So this starts somewhat, you know, in that chronological sense. Going back to 2003, it is from an album called 8 million stories by a group Soul Position uh, yourself and RJD2 and the song is called The Jerry Springer Episode. Just
2: like Mary Jane eyes like Lauren Hill. Like Big Les, backyard what and thick up. legs But the only time we got along was Yo, in the bed She had an attitude of monumental magnitude Couldn't take her anywhere without the broad acting rude Even with your family, she had no gratitude I took her to my mom's crib, she started snapping on the food Goes without saying that my mom's wasn't feeling it Wild out, tried to hit shorty with a skillet I held mom's back, told old girl to leave My mom's already had a handful of weed.
0: Is this a fictional song or is this based on actual events? Uh, it's
1: fictional, you know what I'm saying? But it's, it's more like I always pull from little funny-ass scenarios that I see around me in my life. And I think when I wrote this, I probably was watching Jerry Springer every day. I had a period in my life where I would literally watch Jerry Springer, then i watched watch like Judge Mathis, then I had periods before then when I was watching like uh Eliminate and just dating shows. I had a real heavy TV period when I was writing this album. And so the Jerry Springer shit and all the reality shows was just like always in the front of my mind. It's just like, this is the most bugged out, you know, kind of sad but entertaining thing on television. But I can't stop watching it. And uh, <laughs> you know, when it you know, at that time, I felt almost like and me and RJ felt it similarly. La- like underground rap was too serious. Like if you go back to 2001, 2002, there really was no humor in underground rap at all. And so uh, we kind of felt like, yeah, we can rap and our beats are dope, but we, when we and RJ got together, we would laugh and bug out and you know how it is. Like I've been to your house and we've done funny skits with me and RJ have always kind of been like that, laughing and and stuff like that. So the Jerry Springer episode was just like, yo, I'm going to do some bugged out, funny shit. Just make it about a girl that, you know, that you you need to get rid of, but you can't because you just don't know how to act. And, And everybody's dated somebody like that. You know, we're like, man, I really should get rid of this chick. But you know, like, it is fine, though. Like, look at that ass. You know, or whatever you say. And then you end up, like, putting up with all kind of stuff you shouldn't put up with. So, and the beat just sounds bugged out and funny, you know? Like, you can't write a serious song to that. And so, I was always drawn to those kind of songs, those kind of beats. RJ would give me those beats, and I, he would never say nothing. He wouldn't know what beat I was going to choose. He might have gave me 30 beats on that beat tape, or, or, or you know, back then. And I probably would have been like, okay, I wrote a whole song to... 30 seconds of what ended up being Jerry Springer. It was never like a full song laid out and half the beats I chose were like, he would do beat CDs where he might have a beat that's like three minutes, but then he'd have a little outro joint that was just like 30 seconds, you know, Pete Rock, large pro style. I would pick the outro joint and a lot of the album, 8 Minute Stories was that. And Jerry Springer episode was like, that I was like, this is a bugged out rap beat it kind of fits where we are just trying to do some lighthearted stuff because we knew the album was going to be serious anyway. So we always wanted to have a balance with Soul Position. So that was kind of like the the motivation for it.
0: You know, you're a producer in your own right, and then you form a group with a really talented producer as well, RJD2. With him in the producer, you know, seat and you in the MC seat, what did you learn from him uh, making that Soul Position record?
1: Uh, I learned a lot. I mean, truly, I never learned how to write solo songs until Soul Position. I never had any interest in really being a solo artist until that collaboration. So the songwriting process, I kind of learned that as a soloist from doing Soul Position. And then it. it I think maybe the biggest lesson it, it taught me is just how to give someone their space. Right. Like, Because I do beats, sometimes there's a natural need for me to say, oh, you should take it there, or you should do this with it, RJ, or what about, okay, I was thinking you should add some this at that part. I don't do that with soul position. With soul position, it's kind of like, he'll give me whatever he gives me. I'll pick what I want. If I've got the BPM, I might arrange it, you know what I'm saying, a little bit, verse chorus. I'll send it back to him and let him go to town until he's done. And when he's ready to let me hear it, then I will go. But I tried to give him his space because I realized because I make beats that I would want the same space. So I don't want to become one of these annoying rappers telling the producer <laughs> what to do just because I rap. You know what I mean? Yo, yo,
0: yo, change the snare. Change the snare here. here.
1: You know, we actually had an argument over the sna- of a of snare on 8 Million Stories. No, tell me. what What, what is this? I remember we had a, a real debate over one snare over there because I was like, yo, the snare just ain't, this just ain't the one. I was like, you got mad snares in there can we just try something else and i remember him getting kind of tight like nah this is a snare and i was like all right you got it chief you know i do think he went double back and changed that snare on his own
0: though (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is the moment that we clip out, and it's like ah, in your face, RJ. <laughs> right, right, right. You guys are also twenty years younger than you are now. Then at the time, so you know the the, yeah. the notes and the creative process part of the you know process might have been still a new territory for talented young men working together. Exactly,
1: and and I think that's all it was because you know RJ's got his own thing, you know uh, his own style and. I don't want to be so bent on my vision of the production that I kind of cut off his gift and what he brings to the unit that's so unique. You know, there's something there that people hear when they hear my voice over his production that I can't do on my own. And if I start standing in his way and telling them how to do his thing, his voice gets muted a little bit.
0: Sure. Finally, I'd be remiss if I don't ask the annual question of what's up with that Soul Position album? (laughs) is there is there another one uh what's up with that uh you know
1: hey it, it, it's it's coming it's coming i don't it's <laughs> it's
2: it, it's, it, it
0: exists oh god that's a that's a brutal answer it's coming and, and you
1: know it it does exist it's one of those things where it's like you know there's been so many weird things that have happened when we start trying to get the ball rolling on that thing and uh You know, we had talks last, you know, like this last year and trying to get it scheduled. And it's like, I mean, I do think it's going to come out within the next year. I I believe that because I believe that, you know, the things that had to be figured out have been figured out. And now it's more a matter of, okay, now that we know we both want this to, to come out in this kind of way. Now let's just go back to what we were talking about in terms of a plan and and. Getting on the same accord and setting a date and rolling with it, but you know the good thing is like it's, the, the record's done. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not like we're sitting here. Uh, should we do a new soul position record? Right. The music being there already changes the whole discussion for us, and and at least that kind of gets us into you know the, the more productive part, which is how can we maximize this? Because you know the longer you go without putting out a record, you can't really have step. You're like, man. I really need our people to hear this record, and so we have to really be on one page with the, with how we're going to market it, what we're going to do to get the word out, and, and uh, prioritize it on each of our ends.
0: An acceptable and enticing answer, and then again, that was that was the 2020, you know, installment of where's the soul position <laughs> album. Song two. This is not technically your song, mm-hmm. but. It's it's really your song. And this is another one that I'm sure you've gotten asked about in the past. It is from 2002… It is on a rapper named Aesop Rock's album, Daylight, uh-huh. and the song it, is called right *Alchemy*.
2: I spit with an Yo. immense amount of power. Talk slang, showers, showers power, cowards, cower underneath our Storm clouds that indicate the acid rain hours. hours, hours now or hour, never, ever, ever, ever ending on a ever, 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 ever. On the bad No gripping no, a crap though for spitting a bad quote. Blueprint, what's your approach? I smash black folk and white folk Put and make a Kodak moment out of the most boring open mic. I'll make a sad
0: fan You know what I mean? No disrespect to Aesop Rock, but you know what I mean when I say that it's kind of a blueprint song with like Aesop Rock as well on, on the on the song.
1: Yeah, I came out blasting on that one. I came out just firing. <laughs> you know. Uh, the splash. Yeah, the the splash. that's that that was yeah, that was a special song, man. You know, that song, you know what I remember the most about that time was like, that was like our first trip to New York City and or it might've been our second. But I remember, you know, after A$AP put out his, um it was an Appleseed album, me and Cryptic from uh, Adams fam and all them were already cool. We had met on like, Uh, a bunch of forums. I don't know if you remember ATAC.com. You sell tapes and stuff and uh, Hip Hop Infinity and all these little websites with forums. And uh, so we would go on these these forums and somehow me and Cryptic kind of got cool. And so me and all the greenhouse, we drove out to New York and kicked it with them for, I think it was right around Christmas or so. After our tapes, had came out. And uh, we stayed in Long Island. They all slept on Cryptic's, you know, floor of his apartment, you know, his bedroom in his parents' house at that time. And uh, it was like seven dudes in there for like, you know, three or four days just making music. We re-released our music that spring and they came out to perform, all the Adams Family and, you know, what would end up being Cannibal Ox and Hanger 18, all those guys. And uh, they brought Aesop Rock with them. And we had met him at a point, but I think him and Logic had like a thing where they're like, yo, I like your shit. I like your shit, you know, because they were kind of in the same weird space then, you know we got cool. And then we're like, okay, the next time we come out, we're going to come out for Rocksteady, and we're going to do this shit all over again. So this is all within like a year or two. So we were all fans and we started exchanging tapes. So when I would see the Adams fan or, or Crip, he would give me a tape with a bunch of their stuff. I'd give him a tape with a bunch of my stuff. And this was also like rhyme series because we were cool with Slug and I did in too. And so when they would come to Columbus, we would have tapes. So we would have these tapes that were kind of circulating with demos of songs and collaborations and some, and it would be like Soul Position songs on it that had no one heard. And I was hearing like Cannibal Ox songs and like 2000, you know, like Metal Gears and all this. It was just like blowing my mind. And we're like, yo, this is, it's crazy, but we were all just like family, just like super cool immediately. The next time we were out there, a logic, he was like, Yo, I'm gonna do some stuff with a logic too. And I was like, He's like, man, you should do some. I like, Cool, let me pick a beat. And so I had, I played him the beat over the phone before we got out there. And like, this is the beat, you know, I wanted to make something mean and slow. And uh, he loved it. And I was like, Okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come out and bring my NPC with me and let's do this shit together. And uh, when we were out there, I think we were at Cryptic One's house. Cryptic engineered it, recorded it, and he mixed it. And so, you know, I wrote and I was like, all right, I'm just going to come out the gate like I do on all of my stuff. And then, you know, it was just, I just caught lightning in a bottle. Sometimes you just got it, you know? And it was one of those days it was like, okay, I'm just in my bag with this verse and it just worked. And then he and I wrote the parts where we were going back and forth and then the chorus came together. And uh, it's just like a, a classic collaboration. And we didn't know at that time, this was... You know, I think this was right before he signed to Def Jux or, or right around the same time. So it was like, we were just doing music. We didn't know what the home was going to be for this music. Uh, we didn't know at the time that RJ was going to get signed to... W- Def Jux didn't exist. And then as we started doing our stuff, then they popped up and they existed. We're like, oh shit, y'all are cool with LP? Because, you know, we everybody loved Cold Flow back then. I couldn't believe that they knew LP. Like, how y'all know LP? This is incredible. And then we were out there just going to Rocksteady and and so we were kind of introduced into that whole underground scene. You know, uh, Stronghold, those castles, we all, all, to this day, Weightless and Stronghold is all cool, lifelong, and Poison Pen, that's still family to this day. It's all from started back then, you know, 99, uh, 2000 when all those crews were just running around and the Scribble Jam and, uh, but that that Alchemy collab was like, and you know, I had joints like that all over the place within the crew. But I didn't have anything that was popping like that. And when that song came out, everybody was like, who is this guy?
0: Was there ever a question as to whether it might not even end up on Aesop's project? Was there ever a point where you were like, "Uh, may- maybe this is something that I want to use on a Blueprint project? No, no. Nah,
1: nah, I never thought about that. You know, because back then we were doing so much music that we never even considered like, oh well, I'm gonna take that. When it was like if he wanted it for his shit, he's like, yo, let me get that. It was, it was his. You know, in the same way where like he did like two or three songs with a logic and one came out on Logics, and one came out on his and one was like a side years later. And we were just sitting around doing music. We like the day we did Alchemy, we probably recorded
0: eight or 10 songs, you know what I'm saying? So it wasn't like this moment where you were like, oh my God, like this is this is the one because you guys were just like barring out on on everything that you guys were doing.
1: Exactly. I never, I mean, everybody who was there when we recorded, it was like, damn, that's fire. But we were doing all that stuff. I never thought that it was going to be that. I never thought that the timing would come out to where he was taken off as Def Jux was taken off to give him the platform. And this thing would be on this record that just like basically was kind of I don't say hand picked, but it was pretty much a, a record that was like made for our audience or what would become our audience. And I didn't know that because it was all forming around us. So we didn't really know like underground hip hop was technically kind of new. Like we didn't even really have a lane until all these things kind of came together. And then it became a lane.
0: I, I guess what I always think about is, did it not feel of, as official as... It might look in hindsight now to you or to people from the outside, because even the underground at that point in the late '90s was still like Talib Kweli or, or people who are signed to like more established things. Did it, it did it sort of just feel like to to translate it into like a comedy like zone? Like, did it feel like you guys were just doing like amateur open mic night like type stuff, and like all of a sudden it's like, oh, this stuff that we made that we know is dope. All of a sudden is on a bigger platform. Like, we actually fucked around and we made something here and it didn't feel like we were building a movement at the time. Yeah, definitely. It definitely felt like that because, you know, if you look back at that landscape, it was
1: raucous, you know, because it it was kind of that kind of stuff. Like, none of us could get played on Stretch and Bobito. None of us would get played on, you know what I'm saying, the Wake Up show. They didn't mess with none of the kind of stuff that we were doing. We weren't making the kind of underground shit that, the biggest underground outlets were messing with. So we didn't even technically have a lane until we all got together. And then all of a sudden uh, Sadiq and Slug were like, Hey, wait a minute. We got something here. And then, you know, LP and Demetri were like, wait a minute, we got something here. And then they basically started picking up groups from our whole circle. You know what I'm saying? Like weightless, Adam's family. We were kind of like the farm teams for what would soon become Def Jux and Rhyme Sayers. They were seeing what we we're doing. Okay, this Soul Position thing, this is the RJ... Oh, man, what's up with that? Let's get that. Bing, they just pluck it out. All this RJD2 thing? Oh, yeah, we got that over here, Dev. Come on, fuck with us. And so, oh, this CanOx thing that's with Adams? Like, Adams, weightless, and You know, we were the farm team. Were the, and I don't necessarily even think those... Like, they were just looking at like, look at these dudes doing all this damn music. It's different than everything else. And then all of a sudden... Rhyme Sayers and Waitlist starts becoming this thing and this underground shit that we're doing starts to pop. And the next thing you know, uh, Atmosphere gets the Fat Beats deal. And that was a real big thing that people forget about because prior to Atmosphere getting the deal and Rhyme Sayers getting a
0: deal with Fat Beats and put out their vinyl, none of those New York people would touch our shit. You guys were like the underground to the underground. Like the yeah. underground was like, oh, that, <laughs> that 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 shit is too underground for
1: us. Like, yeah. What, what, what is that? Yeah. And we could rap. We did all the same shit. Everybody else. We were still battling. We were still on the scene. We were playing shows. We were doing everything, but our sound wasn't as conventional as everybody else's. So we kind of had to develop our own lane. And we didn't know none of that stuff was gonna pop. Like when we when me and RJ did Soul Position at that time, there was nothing like that. So we were just like, yo. We didn't think we would ever get a label that wanted to put our records out. We couldn't find none of that shit. Like even in Columbus, there were people who looked at us in Columbus, like, "Yeah, y'all y'all are cool," but you know, what I'm saying, like, the Megahertz is real underground because they're because Bobito fucks with them and they're on them. Y'all don't have those coast signs, so y'all don't, y'all don't count almost. And y'all are putting out your own stuff, and you know, even then, it was still a weird thing about putting out your own records back then. People kind of still look at you. You still want to be signed by whoever, you know what I'm saying?
0: It's just such a weird uh, thing to to consider all this stuff when the internet was still in its infancy as well. And like, what a huge difference that makes, you know, 15 years, 10 years later, just all of the practices and the, the gatekeepers and, and, and the way that, that shit operated that is now like, it's just it's out of here. None of that stuff is a factor, or at least not in the same way. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And back then it it was something you had to really think about. Like, okay, how do you, you,
1: as an artist who's not from a major market, who has no affiliations, no cosigns from the biggest outlets, how do you build a career being from Columbus, Ohio, being from Minneapolis, Minnesota? How do you do that? And we you know, that's kind of how the touring thing went. We saw that, okay, maybe we'll never be welcome in New York like that. Maybe we'll never have those cosigns. But then we would go and we would get on the internet and we would see that people were rocking with us and people were buying the tapes. And then there became these little online boutiques that sold nothing but stuff like the shit we was doing. And then that gave us some, like, wait a minute. Then we started making money off of it. Like, wait a minute, we're making money. We're making enough money to pay a logic couple hundred dollars every, we, oh, here's some records. That meant a lot you know and but it was something where we had to go a completely different route because we never could get those cosigns because we were just so different and like a song like alchemy to this day you will never catch somebody like stretching bobito playing that they probably don't even acknowledge it exists even though it's a classic they'll be like oh yeah whatever we don't play no aesop rock or no that's that weirdo shit you know what i'm saying but you know they're they're, they're
0: lost you know what i'm saying we still we still won you know <laughs> it's so ridiculous too that like you could sort of give that mentality a pass. At the time, okay, sometimes, you know, you got to be an early adopter to hop on that stuff. But at this point, this is a, a damn near 20-year-old record. I've seen yeah. you perform <laughs> this song in front of crowds and the place <laughs> erupts. Like, there's an audience yeah. for this, guy. Stretch and Bob, yeah. if you're listening to this, you need to add some alchemy Aesop Rock featuring blueprint to your playlist, to your mix shows, whatever that may be. Yeah, I agree.
1: I agree. And it's like, look, we, we've, we've proved that this is a viable thing. Like, when can
0: y'all just give it up? Can you please just give us our props? Just a little bit. When would you say that you think whatever era that was, whatever you want to call that, the sort of bubbling and the the rise of this movement and this counterculture? When when do you end that chapter? What year do you feel like that particular chapter ended in your memory? Uh, I think oh six, oh seven was when I saw things change. And what what do you attribute that to?
1: You know what? Well, the funny thing is is oh six. If I remember correctly, that's when we started getting backlash from the same press who loved us in 01, 02, 03. And a lot of it, they wanted to play like party music, the Diplo stuff, um, Dipset, like all that stuff. Then they became almost like, instead of just being like, okay, we moved, they was like dissing us. Like, nah, that shit isn't, we are ashamed to have, you know, said that that shit was fire five years ago, because now we listen to Dipset and Cameron is the best rapper you know what I'm saying? And, you know, Diplo and any, who anybody associated with him was where it's at. Now we're trying to dance, the mashup guys, girl talk and all of that stuff. That's where all of the, the press went and all the press went there. And, and thankfully, we were able to make it through that era because we had built the touring thing. The press pretty much tried to kill the movement, just like they tried to help build it between 06 and 08. And a lot of people didn't make it through that because they didn't have that grassroots thing uh, with, with their fan bases that we had.
0: That's so interesting. You, I can't, I can't think of a lot of examples of a time when media builds something up. Like media specifically. I could see it with fans. I could see it you know, with people, You know, uh, especially with people of a certain age, adolescents, you, you love something and then all of a sudden the shit that you love when you're 12, isn't as cool as when you're 16. And you almost feel like you have to disavow that. But for journalists and media to do that, it seems so wildly personal in a way that, like, shouldn't really infiltrate the walls of, like, media and press. Why do you, why do you think that was the case? I know you can't speak for them, but if you had to speculate, like, why do you think that they were coming for you next? Like...
1: What I realize is that it's kind of a... uh it's a part of their job, right? Like when you try to build your career on your ability, your reputation or your ability to show people what's next, you, you somehow set yourself up for a tendency to tear down what was already next before in order to legitimize your viewpoint of this new shit that you're telling people they need to be up on. You know what I'm saying? So it's almost like this c- continual tearing down of the old thing uh, in order to prop up the new thing And I think we have a lot of that Because there was also this identity thing That some of these writers were having too Where like people knew that they were some corny motherfuckers Some of them Some of them were legit dudes Who we would see out at events and kick it I remember kicking it with like John Carmanica. Me and that dude had an epic night at Scribble Jam Just drinking and kicking and partying it. You know what I'm saying so, so some of those guys are cool dudes in real life Some of them are not And because they're not They're kind of insecure And so when the street shit kind of started popping in the club shit, they can be like, oh, I can be a writer and kind of prove that I'm cool enough to listen to club shit and street shit. Oh, man, sign me up. Fuck this nerd shit. Fuck this emo shit. And they kind of tried to get us out of the paint. I mean, I have friends here in Columbus, former friends, I'll say, who used to write about us and used diss the shit out of us. In local, like, they, they made it a point to write about records that we didn't even send them to try to diss us in the weekly papers. You know, cause after a while I'm like, yo man, if you don't fuck with this shit, it's cool. Don't listen to it, leave us alone. Then you pick up the paper and you see them talking
0: shit about you. And you're like, man, these dudes are just trying to get points. We broke into a Logic's garage. And we stole this off a of thumb drive. <laughs> Here's the right. album, it's not even not yet. And it's trash. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's how they were doing us for years. And now, now the funny part is
1: now, now everything's cool again. Now they want to be cool again. Cause now they're like, cause you know, you remember for a while you couldn't use like, like backpack rap was a pejorative, right. Underground rap was a pejorative. Are you making that underground shit? That was, that wasn't tight. Now I hear rappers like rock Marciano and you know what I'm saying? Talking about uh, we're underground, you know what I'm saying? And, and, uh, uh, West side gun, they're happy to be underground. They call themselves underground rappers. I'm like, this is amazing because 15 years
0: ago they crucified us for being that. You know what I mean? And the terms also just sort of seem a little less applicable too. It's like what is underground if we're all if everybody gets on Spotify with the same <laughs> distribution? Obviously, Either. you know, people with budgets and, and and bigger labels they're able to, you know, market and and get that out there, but there's certainly a line in the sand that again, thanks to the internet and the sort of streaming distribution where, you know, you can't hang your hat totally on like, oh, well, he's mainstream and he's underground, you know, like because it's all being Consumed in similar ways. Yeah, it's blurry. And, you
1: know, and that's the thing I also have to acknowledge because, yeah, you're right. When we were coming up, underground wasn't just your placement in the market, it was identified with a certain sound that went against a certain sound. Now people say underground more uh, in respect to their place in the market. Not necessarily, yeah, we make some grimy shit, but for us, it was like, nah, you can't be no underground. Do making club records Or making pop music in underground There's no such thing as being You know what I'm saying Like underground is this sound That's how we felt coming up Because we were making it You know Almost in rebellion to the other shit That we didn't want to be And now it's You're right When when access is the same When the, everybody has the same Yeah You get on Spotify We're all there You got artists like West Side Gun Getting signed to these You know To the fucking Rock Nation Where's the line now You know what I'm mean? saying
0: Right. I would also think that the delineation between that sound probably eases up as well when you exit like, you know, your your youthful years. I I, I, I we've seen it with your career and, and really anybody if you want to look at and pull from that era, everybody kinda of started exploring other sounds. It's not like they felt so dogmatic about every song has to use this breakbeat, like this dusty breakbeat. And like, if you don't sample right, right. strictly off vinyl, then you're corny, you know? It's like, oh, <laughs> everybody <laughs> yeah. kind of loosened up a little bit, I think, too. Song 3. We're skipping ahead now. 2012. Uh, we, we just hopped a decade. We're going to uh, the album Deleted Scenes, and the song is called The American Dream.
2: That's how that yeah, I used to drink a the class back in freshman year. I was a popular kid, but had some terrible gear. My peach was broke, no cream for clothes, so you know what that means. In school jokes, right? I think I was 13 or 14 when my parents had to have a little talk with me. They told me money don't grow on trees, and ever since then, I've been on my peas up
0: and out the house. Until so, this was like the outtakes, sort of sister album to Adventures in Counterculture, right? Yeah, this was a lot of stuff where every song on this record at
1: one point was in the track listing and then kind of got moved out or shuffled out for whatever reason um yeah this song this was something where it's just more about just like i think we had talked about like you rarely hear anybody in our lane speak about wanting to have good things and the best things it's like it's like it comes with if you're gonna do this shit, it's like some unspoken rule that you gotta just hate money. You know what I mean? You gotta be sleeping on couches and be dirty all the time and just fuck that. I don't want, I don't want no money from this shit, or I don't wanna this to be my job. And all I thought that was weird, like, why don't somebody just say that this is this is the American dream, man? Like, you know, I just wanna be in a nice car. I just wanna be taken care of for whatever it is I choose to do, I wanna be successful. And like hearing other people say that, like it's like yo, it's okay for us to say that shit sometimes. It don't mean that we are like celebrating excess, but I do think that there's a part of this, like the the American dream that hip hop epitomizes. But like sometimes we spend so much time vilifying it that we ignore the example that hip hop is set. You know what I mean?
0: I feel like it sort of ties into what we were talking about before. It's almost a reactionary response or a reflexive response to well this music that's very commercial and glorifies capitalism and, and the having of things it seems like diametrically opposed to what we're doing. So therefore, our sound is different and we reject the, the spoils of war. That right. We don't want money. You you will reward us with dap. <laughs> and that, that is all we will take. Yeah. And then you're homeless. And then you, you're mad and don't rap anymore. And you literally can't rap anymore. So You, you can't afford a booth anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. No
1: studio time for you because you hate
0: money. Well, in addition to uh, sort of giving a megaphone to what seems like a controversial idea in the underground, this era was also you sort of shedding your skin that you had had previously in your career, experimenting with less samples, uh, yeah. more live instrumentation. And at the time, it was sort of a big, I would say maybe even a little scary move for you, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely,
1: definitely. I mean, I got I, I got cussed out over that shit. I remember we went on that European tour on this Rhyme European tour after Adventures and Countercords came out. Man, it was some people there who were so mad at me. For that record Like I remember a dude I'm standing next to Greaves At the merch table And he was just livid That I sang on the record He was just so fucking mad And he was just trying to let me have it And uh, I was just like Well, do you hate Greaves too? And he was like No, Greaves is fine I was like Well, he he gets to sing Why don't I get to sing? You know what I mean? I can sing just as good as this fool But I realized then that Yeah, when I was doing it I didn't give a fuck I didn't, give a, I didn't understand what I know now about branding and that branding is happens in the minds of the people and that things that you do for four, five, six, seven years straight, people identify that with you. And that when you go against that, you create conflict in their mind. You can be doing it great. It doesn't matter like you're creating conflict simply because you're doing it under the same name, but you're doing something completely different. And when I was doing that record, which I, which I think is, is a crazy record, and it's a crazy time because I look back at some of that stuff like, wow, I can't believe I made this. And I'm still impressed with it, but it, it reminds me of just like the hill that I was climbing to kind of get the people to understand that I was more than just a guy who made 1988, you know what I mean? Or the guy who, you know, rhymed with Soul Position. I need to prove that I'm an artist and so that I can have the, the longevity in my career because it wasn't just about that record with me. It was like, yo, how do you set yourself up to have another 10 years at this? And I looked at that going into that record, like if I don't do this record a certain kind of way, some people are going to be bored with it. Some people are going to move on. This thing is moving. And this is what I want to do. Like I'm sitting around making this stuff every day and I believe in it. Although there was no lane there was no lane. Until until Kanye put out 808s and Heartbreaks, that record probably would not have seen the light of day. Because they were finally like, wait, there's somebody kind of like what you're doing. It's not what you're doing. But it was that big of a void when I started that record that his record coming out probably ensured that that record came out.
0: But despite you saying, you know, that about sort of relating to in hindsight, the guy at the merch table, you know, castigating you over that. It, <laughs> yeah. it, it feels it, it feels like that it was ultimately a good move for your brand, right? De- definitely. Well, definitely because I think prior to that, I was just seen as a rapper. That
1: record, the recording side of it, and then the live show side of it, I think helped take me into the next chapter, which is, okay, oh, I seen him on stage and he's playing a a guitar. he's playing keys, okay, he's got effects now, he's got, you know, a bass player, okay, and a DJ. So it was this different experience that people had never had. And it's like, okay, now, oh, he's on stage with a trombone. These are things I couldn't have done off of the 1988 record. I've been given the the ability to take chances now and do different things now because I took that chance back then.
0: In hindsight, do you think there's anything you would have done differently in terms of trying to... would, Would it have been possible for you to ease your demographic into this change? Or do you think that the sort of swift, like, sharp turn was necessary? There's no way around that. Uh, It probably could have been done better.
1: Probably. But it would have taken more setup. It would have taken more years of just, like, really being uh, contrived and just like, okay, let me just make sure that this has this element, you know what I mean? Or let me just snatch the snare from impeach the president, you know, and put that in radio and So it will feel a little bit more hip hop, you know, but I was just like, fuck that. I'm going to do what I feel. <laughs> if This shit works. It's going to work. And if they don't like it, they can kiss my ass. If this is my last shot, this is it. That's how I looked at it. I look at it, I, I did that record. Like this could be my last record in this situation. And with any fan base because you understand like the underground shit was dying right before my eyes. As I'm making that record, that's the same period where people are killing underground rap and are people I know who are doing it are going back to work. I'm like, man, this is, people are struggling out here. This is
0: not what it used to be. You recorded enough material to warrant two albums. You had the adventures in counterculture and then like sort of the sister record deleted scenes. How long was the gestation process for this and then what was that process even like for you deciding what was going to make this record you had a lot of material
1: yeah and you know there's probably another two CDs worth of stuff that didn't even make it to there but you know that was the first time in my life where I'll say I truly made demos you know like as opposed to if I'm just making a a, a rap song like on some boom bap shit I hear the beat The beat is pretty much fleshed out. It'll go through some some changes, but it's not it's not going to change radically. I'll write the song, record it. If it's dope, it's a keeper. This record was completely different. It was like I had to go back to just writing, writing melodies and riffs. So I would wake up every day, and my goal every day was to write three good riffs. I would sit down in front of the piano, you know, you know how it is, you play. So it's like you sit down, you do, go through 10 ideas, sometimes 15, 20. Those three you save will be like, okay, I'm on to something with these. Then you come back and you know, okay, can I come with a little bridge or some variations? And I would do all this stuff on the piano. And I'm not the best piano player, so it would probably take me longer than to take other people. And then this was before I was using Ableton as well, so it probably would have been slower then. And so uh, that whole part was way before I wrote a single word. It was just working on music, and I had never done music in that way before. I would just Because I was a sample guy. But this was the way I learned how to write music through that process. So it took me a minute, it took me from, you know, 2005 to 2010. And it probably wasn't until late 2010, maybe six months before the first single came out to where I knew the exact track listing. And I had to like, I had to listen to it and then take breaks because it was like, it was like obsessive almost. I'm sitting there with all these songs that are all completely different from each other. And I'm trying to put together an album where everything is
0: different, but it fits. You're kind of too close to it at some points. So you kind of have to take a step back so you can actually see the the mural that you're painting.
1: Yeah, yeah. And some of it didn't come together. But when it was done, I knew. When it was done, it was like, this goes into that, this goes into that, this goes into that. And it was one of those things where it was like, you know, and I talked about in the book where I, I, you know, me and Sadiq would go back and forth about whatever set of songs I was working on. And I'd have different iterations of the album and then, you know, for years, he was like, okay, so what do you think? You, you think you've done? I'd be like, nah, not yet. And i just disappear and do more. And then six months later, hey, man, what do you, what do you think? I don't know what do you think. Yeah, I like this, this, and this. What do you think? You think you are done? No, nope, I'm going to keep going. And I would just keep going. And people thought I was like shelved. And I remember some other artists at the time was like, Print, you know, they're putting out this artist and that artist, and they won't even put out your album. And I was like, whoa, whoa. I'm not even done. Like, I'm, I'm not out because... I'm trying to get somewhere. And it wasn't just writing a adult rap song. I was trying to get somewhere musically at that time. And it took me four years to make that record. But what I learned in that four years about music, I, I apply still to this day. And part of it is that discernment. It's like how to poke holes in your own music to where you don't need nobody to tell you what's missing. I'm at that point now. Like I, if I give somebody a song, I already know two or three things that I could improve upon it with it. I'm just waiting for them to confirm it. I don't need them to to tell me, oh, print, this is how you make it better. No, I just need you to remind me that I'm being honest with myself.
0: Something I've always noticed too about uh, your music is that it seems like at a certain point, I want to say around like the adventures and counterculture album, to me, to my ears, there's almost a discernible style in you started playing with a new uh, sort of vocal tone on that where it was a little bit more uh, deeper and and like a bit more serious. Like, you know, yes. obviously, it's not a complete one-to-one scenario where it's before and after and you, you never blended those styles. But was that something that uh, you did sort of intentionally or, or what… What was the the spark behind that? I'm always interested in MCs who changed their voice up slightly, you know?
1: Yeah, it, it absolutely was uh it was intentional. You know, like sometimes you have these periods, and the thing that allowed me to kind of develop it was like, you know, it's funny what I think kind of did it, and this is some random trivia here is like I think that period I started actually sitting down when I recorded. That was one change. Another change in the counterculture era was like I was recording those songs none of those songs were recorded with drums. So every song on Adventures in Counterculture was just me recording it to the piano version of it. So if you look at like the clouds or Radio Inactive, the, the, the piano part, that's the intro, that was basically the beat that I wrote the song to and recorded the demo to. And so because it, w- it was so sparse and it had no drums, I couldn't just... Go crazy, but then you know when you do that, you start listening back. Like, yo, this sounds kind of fresh. You know, I sound like a uh, guru, and it's mostly the voice. You know, and I start thinking like, yo, we. And I thought he sounded like bugged out. And I was like, yo, I can kind of get that style just by sitting. And just not even waiting until this beat is fully produced to record my vocals. Just record over it right now. And then the pocket sounds different. And then like, but once I started seeing how it sounded, especially with the mood of certain songs, I decided to kind of keep it that way and not re-record, Uh, you know, more animated.
0: Why were you recording two uh, drumless versions of the songs at that time? Was there a reason?
1: Because it was the first time I was composing. So as I was, I was comp- you know, typically you write, you, you know, you're sampling, then you're pretty much hook up the sample add the drums you're done for me i was basically writing back then was more like okay i'm gonna write a riff and if i like the riff and if it inspires me emotionally i'm gonna just write right now instead of trying to fully fully produce this song right now and then maybe write myself into a corner or feel like i didn't get done done today i was like if this makes me feel any way emotionally the melody then i know that it'll translate when it's fully produced so i would write right then and there to just The piano, or just the guitar, whatever it was, and there were no drums, and that's kind of. And then I went back and produced as I found songs that sounded good.
0: Oh, okay, that's interesting. And then what was the impetus behind recording "Sitting Down"? Well, these these are the questions that we get into on this show. Like, I'm I'm, I'm going all in the weeds here, digging,
1: digging real deep. So,
0: Uh, yeah, what was that?
1: I, I don't. I think it was more just like. You know you know how it is when you're recording yourself and sometimes you got to get back to the control thing at the same time. You're like, okay, I got to hit record, run over here, do this take. And after a while, I was like, I'm tired of running across the room to record these vocals. So I'm just move the mic right here next to the machine. I'm going to hit record, and then I'm going to turn this way and I'm going to record, and I'm going to turn back. And that's kind of how it was just strictly convenience because I didn't want to run across the
0: room no more. Song 4. A few years later we're in 2015 now from the king no crown album and the song is called great ideas never die
2: they say that dying young is only for the unlucky but i envy all the ones that get to leave early life's a trip you better have your bags ready you never want to be the last one to lead a party I thought that we would go first and you would tell our story. Maybe make a movie about the Romsayers rise to glory. The classic albums, the fanfare, the world tours. So it's kind of weird. I'm here now telling yours. I've been losing people my whole adult life. Never been one to exploit my pain in a song. I yeah,
1: that, that song, I mean, obviously, you know, that song is about, you know, idea, a friend and, you know, label made. And, uh you know, it was one of those songs where I was trying I remember there were other songs that were out about him before mine. And at the time, it was like there were a couple people who wrote verses and stuff
0: you know, about him and they didn't even, had never met him. Right. He died, he died in 2010. So this song comes out like five years five after years later. he was dead. Yeah. yeah. And I probably recorded it in 2014, 2013 or whatever.
1: But I remember seeing those people and I was like, yo, I, some of them I was just like, that's not how I would do it. But then I realized, like, yo, they never met him. They didn't know him at the stages you knew him. You know what I'm saying? So they, they, they're not wrong for that. But if you feel that way, then it's your job as his friend, you know what I'm saying, and colleague to go out there and, and do it, write the song that you think needs to be written. And it, was, it wasn't it was easy. And, and, and you know, I, I probably cried while I wrote it, you know what I'm saying? Or by the end of it, when I sat down and listened to it. But I had to do it because, you know, sometimes it's kind of like going to someone's funeral. If you don't go to someone's funeral, it's hard to get closure. And funerals are sad events. You know, no one really wants to go to a funeral. But you go to pay respect and so that you can get closure. And so that song to me was like, this is how you get closure on your, your friend's passing. You know, you have to write this thing and make sure he's sent off properly so that when people look for him or, or want to remember him, They have this thing that makes them feel and understand and it reminds them how special he was, you know.
0: I really like how you say in the first line, they say that, like, you know, it's tragic for somebody to die young, but it's even harder for the people who are left.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that people don't really talk about that. Like it's like we spend all this time, like, oh man, they die young. Oh, man. I'm sad, like, yo, man, we, we still stuck here though. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like like dying is probably easier than living. You know, you you typically don't get a choice about dying. It happens like that. Living, you wake up every day and if you're not happy with your life and if you have pain and and stuff that you got to work through or situations that ain't, ain't optimal, life can be hard, man. Like, especially if you're dealing with losing people, you know? And so I never looked at it like, Sticking around really long is, 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 is means automatically that this means more or like you know what i 'm saying like well, i 'm the lucky one because it not necessarily man some people are not meant to be around longer you know they they he 's a guy he did so much in a short amount of time it's like he really didn 't have what else did he have to really prove you 've been killing this since you was sixteen seventeen it was something, it took me a minute to write it, you know one line at a time, a line here, a line there. But there was just, there were certain things that I felt I needed to say that other people didn't say.
0: So far. We're going back now, 2005 from the 1988 album, and the song is called Fresh.
2: Yeah, you know how we do, yeah, uh-huh. You know what time it is, my name is Blueprint, Blueprint. Blueprint. you know how we do, it's that time again uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah I'm the man the whole underground is talking about cats still in my style before I even had an album out, two years ago the same cats was doubting me, heard me on alchemy, now they sound like me a bunch of powder puffs rhyming with aggression forgot to follow the steps of natural progression, I almost think you sat in on my sessions, you came to class on time but you didn't study my lessons you only got a piece of the genuine article if I call you son it's because I followed you, let me on your line of notes for making it possible, every year I change I feel like
0: you had something approved on the 1988
1: album. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. I did. Uh, you know, it's funny. Like, I remember doing the first song on a 1988 album. And uh, what's funny, it wasn't even for that. It was like me and DJ Prism, we had this thing. We would call, we would call certain shit the 88 style. T-Whip tour with us. And like, I remember I had a verse I did on one of Prism's records. It never came out. And it got lost or something. And I was like, yo, how you just going to lose my verse? You know? <laughs> and so I took that verse, that verse ended up being the first verse on a 1988 record. Printmatic, you know the name behind the curtain. That was something I did for Prism record because his records was so raw and grimy. I had to rhyme like that to keep up with him and all of his dudes. So I was like, I got to get real gutter if I'm rhyming with y'all and some shit. And so uh, he heard it and he was like, yo, that's that 88 shit right there. And I was like, you right, that's that 88 shit. I'm about to do the whole record and uh (laughs) that was kind of the the onus for but yeah that whole record i felt kind of like it was time for me to kind of prove what i could do because you know if you really look at everything prior to that i had already done two soul position records maybe two or three greenhouse records i had produced three logic records and so as a producer i was final and then the soul position records gave me the confidence as a solo artist to be like you know what you can make a record now because remember Friday. I didn't really want to make another record. I was going to probably re- I really wanted to retire after 8 million stories. Cuz I remember I wrote share this and I was like you're never going to top this song. Stop
0: rapping. Wow. Why did you think that? Like what was what do you, what do you attribute that to? Uh, I just remember hearing
1: a song and being like, "Yo, you're never going to write this shit again. This is fucking special as fuck. You're not you can't do that every time you step up to the mic." you might as well just stop because you're going to let people down and you're going to be fucking whack because you can't do
0: that now. I can't tell if that's the highest compliment that you're giving yourself or the highest <laughs> insult or the lowest it's insult, bold. you know? <laughs> it's bold. It's like, so yeah, you, 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 you did something so amazing. That- yeah. Every blue moon, you're actually really good. And then you <laughs> suck the
1: other time. But, you know, you don't want the part where you're really good to be known for that because then you look like you'll suck more often. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so, but now nah, that song, it 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 took me a while before I even wanted to start a record, and I think I had to kind of take the approach I did because otherwise, I'd have been trying to make songs that were like on some soul position shit. And then through through dealing with Prism and just just his aesthetic and just what we were into as producers, then we were just like, Yo, how come nobody's tapping into this '88 shit? We would have whole conversations about like that style of production, and no one's doing it. And I was like, Okay, I'm gonna see if I can pull this off. And so uh, Fresh was like an example of that but you know the funny thing and i don't even know if i've ever told this story before the beatbox sample on fresh there was a music sampler that uh twix put out right with twix the candy bar if i remember correctly they did like a, a sampler with bad boy records right and it was on cd and you know who was hosting it dougie fresh get the fuck out of here
2: Yep. And so I had this sampler and it was
1: like, it started out with him like, yo, this is your whole Stuggy Fresh. This Twix and boy. And I was like, I took that shit and chopped it all the
0: fuck up and turned it into Fresh, Fresh, Fresh. Listen, I'm saying it right now. This, this factoid is going into an episode of the hip hop game show, The Questions that we do. That is incredible. That is incredible. I love shit like that.
1: Uh, but yeah, that record, I really wanted to kind of Kind of take it back to basics because, you know, you also, as we talked about, some people viewed us, our whole crew, as being like, because we were underground and we were more, I guess, quote unquote, underground or just out there than the conventional stuff. A lot of people didn't think we could make records like that. They didn't know that we were heads and we we could do that shit. So part of me was like, yo, I'm gonna show you fools that this this artsy emo shit is just what y'all are calling this, but that we can do anything. We listen to the same records. We're heads just like y'all, and I can make this thing that's just as dope as all that conventional shit that y'all make.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I never thought about it as sort of a reaction or a rebuke of the like artsy, you know, like weird, underground, like cuz it is very much it's cut from that 88 cloth where it's just like hard raps, hard beats, the beatbox samples, the scratching and and done completely. I mean, if I'm not mistaken, you did all the production on that album. Yeah, I did then. all the production on
1: it. Yep.
0: Did that feel like a real progression for you or or did it feel like a regression because you're sort of going back and capturing
1: Not an, I almost say regression. I'll say it was like It was paying homage to something that I never really understood. Before I made that record, I literally bought a bunch of albums from 1988 on tape, and they would just stay in my car for months and months. I remember a whole winter, I had like three or four tapes, and I'm just internalizing the sound. And from refamiliarizing myself with some of these, these songs and these breaks, I'm just like, yo... I never knew who this break was. And then that's where kind of rare groove came in because rare groove lived like a mile away from me in Cincinnati at the time. And so I would be listening to these old songs like, "Yo, Groove, what's the break on the that such and such used on this thing?" And he'd be like, "Oh, that's the blah 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 break." And the next time I saw him, he would give me like two copies of, you know what I'm saying, of the original. And I'd be like, "Holy shit, thank you, Groove." You know, and so uh, he was kind of like my kind of like my library. You know what I'm saying? Like when you're doing a research paper and you go to the library and you're like, yo, I'm doing it on this. What, what, what's the best books on this? And so Groove could give me all the records that I could I could just name. Well, what's that? You know, that oh, that's the UFO break from the blah blah blah. Oh yeah, Steezo use it yeah from the Steezo. That's UFO. Boom, two copies a lot of that record was stuff like that where it was like I knew what I wanted to do but my record collection I ain't been collecting records as long as he has so I needed to have somebody like that so I could kind of take these ideas that I had and then kind of take them and, and put that aesthetic on it but also have the originals so like the tramp break I never had I never owned the the Tramp Break, the Otis Redding joint. I never had that. I knew it was the Tramp Break because Salt and Pepper used it. I was like, yo, the Salt and Pepper Tramp Break. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Let me get that. And he'd be like, all right, here we go. Otis Redding, do, 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 do. Here you go. Give me a clean copy that was clean enough to sample. Then I go and do my work. You know what I mean? Shout out to Rare
0: Groove, the, uh, the <laughs> yeah. historian. It's so funny. You 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 bring him up, and all I can think of is the countless times that you guys stayed at the crib in Orlando. Yeah. And I remember I'd be like driving home from work, or I'd be driving somewhere, and just seeing him walking like miles from the house, walking back to the house because he had like heard about a record store or something that was like three miles away in the Florida heat, I just would pull over like, yo, you want to ride back? <laughs> He's like, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: Groove. He, he explored everywhere. That's his thing. He, he and I just had a thing where he just, I would know that by the time I woke up at nine, he would have walked like three miles,
0: four miles around, had a breakfast sandwich, found a place to dig and come back. <laughs> That's what I was. I was tripping on of that because <laughs> you guys, uh, you, you, when you were on tour, you were staying at a house that I was living in. Uh, you guys stayed at my house, and I, I remember finding that kind of weird. That I'd wake up and I'd, I'd be like, "Yo, like, like print, like." where's your DJ? Like, where's he at? And you'd be like, oh, he's like doing, it. You, you, you sort of just gave me this like smile, this like very knowing like, oh, Groove is on his path, you know? And he would just be doing excursions in a city that he like doesn't know anything about. And he'd yeah. come back sweating with like records under his yeah. under his arms. Yeah, that's
1: Groove. He's, he's a record, you know what I'm saying? He's a, a true, like a, a digging guy, like a guy who knows records. Like some people know records a little Groove is one of those guys who really knows records. Like I'm a loop digger, right? Like I, I find loops, I'm into samples. I don't know the history of the labels. I don't know all the musicians. I don't know like the breaks by name. I just know like, yo, he used it on, you know, what's the, the push it the long break? What's the drills right. you know? He knows those. If you were to name the song that used it, he'd be like, oh yeah, that's the blah, blah, blah,
0: here. Soul 6 uh, We're going back to 2004. This is maybe uh, something that I feel like you get asked about a little bit less so I'm, I'm interested in hearing about it. This is from the Chamber Music album and it is a song called Arms Too Short. to instrumental hip hop album maker. You got you got two under your belt. I want to say one two. Yeah, I got uh, chamber music and sign
1: language. Yeah, that record. I was working on that record when I met RJ. That's how he and I first started start, hung out because our original DJ and waitlist was a guy named DJ True Skills from Columbus, and he would go and play shows with us, greenhouse shows with us, and then I would be playing chamber music. This was in like the year 2000, 99. And he would be like, this shit is bugged the fuck out. You need to meet RJ. And Mm. I was like, who's RJ? He was like, oh, he's moving back from Cali. He just moved back from the Bay, but he makes bugged out instrumental shit like that. Next time you hear, I'm going to take you to his house. And that's how me and RJ met. RJ played me what what ended up being Dead Ringer and I played him that chamber music record.
0: Wow. You were easily just as much developing and grooming yourself to become a producer as you were an MC at the time. Really, probably more a producer in, in that era, right?
1: Definitely, I never saw myself as a solo artist because I was I was producing all the Weightless records, and that was my original just love. I rhymed with Greenhouse because you know we were crew and we just loved doing it. But I never saw my path as a solo artist or as an MC, like I did with production. Production was, you know, that was my thing. And so that record, it was real dark and just mean, but a lot of that came from like, I was heavily influenced by some of the original, what I call the original instrumentalists, which is like DJ Crush, DJ Shadow, Prince Paul, UK instrumentalists in trip hop, because there was no scene for it here. This is like 01. But the funny thing is, Instrumental stuff hearing DJ Shadow records in like 96, 95, that was kind of what got me into DJing, which is what got me into making beats. And so that was always my first love was to be able to get good enough at production to I could be like Shadow or Crush and make those kind of dark mean records. So like that song right there is like the epitome. And so like the vocal samples on it, that's the Prince Paul influence. You know what I'm saying? Because he was always just, you know, you know, just bugged out. But he he had such wide range of the vocal thing. He would tell stories with vocal samples on instrumental songs. And so that song right there is just like a bugged out record. I was like, Yo, yeah, well, I don't know what this dude is talking about,
0: but this just sounds crazy. I'm <laughs> sampling it. Did your journey and path uh, in the in those two instrumental records that you put out did that spill over or sort of? Did it give you any tools that you would then implement into your like your solo records or or your more traditional rap records?
1: I would say maybe pacing. I think, you know, for 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 when you're making a rap record, your pacing is way different than if you don't have a vocalist on it, how you unroll a song, how you kind of introduce different elements and that, that pacing element, I didn't really get that until I started doing that kind of music. And I was like, okay, you can't show your whole hand at the beginning of the track.
0: Because hip-hop is all about, typically beat-wise, it's about finding the illest part of a song and you lead with that. Not only do you lead with that, but for the, all the classic shit, you repeat that part <laughs> for three minutes. And yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's a completely different pacing and journey when you don't, you're don't. you not framing it around a traditional vocal-based song or a lyric-based song. Exactly. And that I think that's the biggest thing I learned
1: from uh doing instrumental music and that and just kind of like the uh letting an idea develop over time so like when you make a rap song i always kind of feel like you know i need to just go ahead and figure out how this is going to go get the elements in it then arrange those elements but when i was making instrument instrumental music like the chamber music there's certain samples that i didn't find till the very end you know i had a song i thought was done and then i find this sample oh i gotta put this in there this works for that, and and you know that was before I had you know I did that record with a EPS sixteen plus, and so I didn't have like a lot of ways to throw in long samples, so I would kind of just needle drop records in and and, and just play records throughout that thing because I didn't only had like. Twenty-five or thirty seconds of sampling time. So a lot of it was just me playing things on top of things and looping it and, and, and putting it together, kind of like collage style.
0: I mean, that's got to feel so archaic now in a time where we use computers to do almost everything. Like, do you do you ever look back and just think, like, how the hell did I make records? Like, doing it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I look back like this was too difficult. It was too difficult, man. Uh, you know what's funny? I look back, I, look, I do look back at some of my records, but I look back at some of the older records. Like, you ever go back and listen to like a, uh, like a Bomb Squad record, you know, Like, a, and you're just like, how were these guys able to put so many different samples together and make it sound like one source in a way that people can't even do right now? When I go back and listen to those records, what I hear is I hear a guy who had literally his whole record collection in his bedroom. And so I knew all my records. Like I literally, I had sticky tabs on every record, every song that had something on it was noted. I couldn't do like you know you had to. It was limited changing the pitch of certain things back then. But be, I, the walls of my room, my bedroom, was all records, and I knew like if I had a 1, thousand fifteen hundred records, I knew every fucking record. And that's what I think the Bomb Squad had that we don't have today. Now people just put shit on hard drives. Right. They don't know the records, like when you know the records, like you spin them out, you know how winter a breakdown is, you just know it, though it's easy to find those connections. Now I think people are they're finding one record, two record, that's it, and like you're saying, they are playing the main part over and over again, but that process was like, nah, if you know your records, you can really put s- together some
0: crazy shit and find some shit that you might otherwise not have you, you might have found the one dope part, and then you know right now it's 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 the same with just listening habits. Any album whether it was a CD or a tape that I got in a time before I had instant access to all music, even if I didn't like the record, I I played the hell out of it. not just A to make sure that maybe they was so good. and B it's like, damn, I just dropped 15 dollars on this. I gotta get my money's worth at least. It's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna leave the movie like in the middle of the second scene because like it's not you know really clicking for me. Yeah, it's true. I had that similar thought with Spotify the other day.
1: I was like, yo, Spotify has intensified the breadth of my music listening incredibly, but it's reduced the depth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) An understatement if there ever was one, at least on my (laughs) end. I'm just like, man, I need to... I've been trying to figure out if it's age, if it's just like the type of work and lifestyle that I live, or if it's smartphones that have sort of taken active listening out of my life as much as it used to be because i used to just listen to records and like i don't vividly remember too much but i'm pretty sure i used to just sit in my room and listen to records and not do anything else and now i have trouble doing less than three things at once at any given moment you know what i mean like
1: yeah it's true yeah, it's very true. I did Last week, I did something like that. I burnt a CD and put it in my car. My homie sent me a record. And man, I've been banging that record more than I played any record in the last six months. It's just an eight-song EP he sent me. I'm sitting here like, yo, this is fire. And I'm like, why am I listening so much? I'm like, oh, because it's on CD. And I kind of have to. So it's like, if I want to, now I think if I get a new record I want that I want to actually listen to, I think I have to burn I have to take it off Spotify. <laughs>
0: <laughs> destroy. Destroy the algorithm. Yeah. yeah. So 7. The last song that I have here is from 2014 Respect the Architect album, and it is a song called Overdosing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Right. Hot. Damn. It sounds so rugged. No looks no glam. Just that low budget it sounds so bug my own fam don't want it print there's no drums man i can't flow on it no worries my man i'm about to go for it soon as you said no thanks i had a song for it i see fans sleeping i see mc snoring so nine out of ten i'm taking weird over boring
0: off kilter <laughs> much <laughs> yeah yeah that was a weird one <laughs> You know, it's crazy. You're, you're sort of, it's a very meta uh, commentary on the song. You're talking about how the song was deemed too weird by your crew to rhyme on. But I got to say, you might have been a little ahead of the curve on the whole no drums movement because. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. And they did take off shortly after. <laughs> no, nobody's like drums are holding MCs back in 2020, 2021. You know, like they're not there for that. But. It's it's interesting to me too because that song is on a record that was sort of how did that song fit into the narrative of the album to you?
1: Uh, well, well you know what I thought the song just was like it was kind of like like you're saying it was meta in a sense where I'm like yo I'm just gonna talk about this style you know what I mean just blatantly so that you guys kind of know and it and it was a beat where I was just like I tried to give it to a logic I was like yo logic you need one of these you don't have nothing like this you out you way out there bro. Come on back and do some conventional stuff every now and again. And uh he was like, dude, like how am I supposed to rap to this? Like there's no drums in it. I was like, you don't hear this shit? Like we, we went back and forth, like you tell me you don't hear this shit. This is you. And uh there ended up being maybe there's three or four beats on that record that are like that. That record, the onus for that record was because I had these beats I kept selling other people. There was beats I tried to give the abstract root on there. He was like, I don't know. I was like, yeah, oh, then I just took it and wrote like a Silver Lining that was a beat I tried to give the abstract root because I wanted to do a record with him I wanted to produce a record for him no one heard it and I was just like alright well I'm just gonna do it I'm gonna rhyme over some bugged out shit and kind of tell y'all what the fuck it is and why y'all miss ISO Raw and it just had like the weird sped up sample it's like a Diana Ross sample I think and it's just it's pitched up enough to where it just sounds bugged out you know especially with the you know the, the key sound almost like uh, harpsichord but it's piano you know I just love that beat and I was like this is something where I don't care what y'all do everybody needs one of these you, you know just
0: have one of these well it was kind of you not to call him out by name on the record you just said crew but uh, yeah, <laughs> but but I guess now you called them out so maybe <laughs> I don't yeah. know there's a statue of limitation on kindness but uh, yeah. You know. well he heard the record when it came out and you know of course
1: he was like damn this beat is fire and I was like he did not remember the beat and
0: I was like wow Oh,
1: I tried to get this to you. You told me it was too weird to handle drums. <laughs> and he was like, damn, why didn't you give me this? I to shut up. He
0: w- he was not respecting your architecture at the time.
1: He was not. He was not. That's why the record came out. <laughs> you know, let people know, like I knew what the fuck it was. But yeah, that, that record, uh, it's a real raw record. I like records like that. I think that song is maybe only two minutes. It's like two 16 bar verses or something. I love that. I like those, like, like the punk rock Ramones thing, you know? Like the Ramones, them fools will hit you with, you know, a minute and a half, you know? It's intense as hell, but
0: <laughs> it's over. Get it's over. in and get out, exactly. Do the job yeah. and then get out of there.
1: Yeah. You know, because I remember, I was coming off of these five-minute songs on Adventures in Counterculture, and you know, and with outros and intros, and I was like, nah, we're
0: just going to get in and get out, man. This was, a, if I'm not mistaken, like the first record. It was sort of the first record that you put out after you left or or stopped doing records with Rhyme Sayers. So this was, did, did this sort of feel like a new chapter for your own uh, label, Weightless? Uh, it did, but I, you know, I
1: really was kind of testing the waters. I wasn't sure how I was going to go. you know. So when I made that record, it was like, I made that record because I had other records that were kind of, I was working on that were within the system that I was tentatively, we were looking at trying to do at Rhyme Sayers. And then I was like, am I capable of putting out any of these other records? Like the King No Crown record, the Vigilante Genesis record, and then the New Soul Position record. Those were the three records I was like, I was like, do I start with any of these? But I was like, nah, let me just make something that kind of reflects you know, my sensibilities now. And let me just test the waters. And that's, that's what I want to do. I just kind of wanted to test the waters and see uh, what was going on. Go through a whole album cycle and see, can I put together the promo the tour, the music videos, the campaign in a way that I'm happy with and can I make money, you know, and what does it look like when I'm not in the system? And that record proved that I could do it on my own successfully.
0: You know it's crazy. I just remembered that I I I helped with one of the one of, one of the music videos that you did yeah, you in Orlando, did. the Respect <laughs> yeah. Architect.
1: The Respect Architect. Yeah, you were are like a uh, uh, you were helping us uh,
0: get it together, keeping various on point. I thought, I, I, yeah, yeah. What a job. Um, I think I. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I gotta I gotta revisit that. I, that totally like fell out of my my memory banks. There. That's yeah. You you've put out so much, and you you were able to cross over. You said that there was a point earlier in our conversation. There was a point where a lot of your contemporaries and peers stopped making records. They had to start getting jobs. They, they had to, you know, kind of fall out of the game as the game evolved. You've been able to evolve and sort of change with the game. And part of that evolving is the fact that to the chagrin, I'm sure, of some of your fans and then to the delight of others, you probably are spending less time making music than you have in the last... 10 years or releasing music, I should say, but your productivity has not slowed at all. You're an author with, you know, four books at this point now. You have out, yeah, this is my fourth one. Yep, you've got a podcast that's over 200 episodes deep. Do you sort of see yourself as is this like a natural evolution? Of sort of moving beyond just doing music or do you think that like these experiences are only going to add to your music catalog like what do you sort of see because that's that's a thing too that gets talked about a lot we're sort of past the point of thinking like oh you know rappers got to retire when they turn 30 you know <laughs> because that's that's too old to like make records but like where do you sort of see all of these new hats video director as well you're, you're you know getting into behind the lens and stuff so where do you sort of see music playing into all of that? Is that something that you think about a lot?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think about it. I think um, for me, what I discovered years ago, like I say, when I, when I wrote the first book, I think that was kind of my first time doing something outside of the hip hop lane, so to speak. So when I wrote the first book, I had this epiphany when I was like in the middle of it. And the epiphany was like, rap is just a medium. You call yourself a rapper, an MC, but what you are is a writer. And so whether you're writing books, whether you're writing outlines for podcast episodes, whether you're writing video treatments, all of these things are things that writers do. And as long as you have a story to tell, you can select which medium is the best for that story. And so the book, to me, there's certain things I can't do without books, I realized like, okay, the story of adventures and counterculture, I never would have been able to tell that story in as depth if I didn't write the book about that. And blogging kind of helped me do that. And and you know, and then also as I'm doing those things, I'm realizing like, okay, you know, we're going from the era where blogs controlled hip hop to where artists started blogging. And I started blogging during that transition and I started seeing like, wait a minute, I'm sending all my traffic to these other people, but when I write blogs, this traffic is helping me sell things, you know? And so the, the more I blog, you know, I had a point prior in 2010, 2009, when I first started blogging, where I would probably blog two to three times a week. I had a whole monthly schedule. Sometimes I blog three, four times a week. I'd wake up and I'd write 1,500, 2,000 words a day, have it all mapped out. And then the more I wrote it, the more I saw like, yo, this is just building your platform. It's not necessarily separate because everything doesn't need to be put into a rap song right? And I saw like, okay, the, the new job requirement of an independent artist is going to be that maybe you are responsible for your platform in addition to making good music. And so, you know, as I left the Rhyme situation, I was like, okay, well, you are now responsible for all of these things, you know? And I took over my my Facebook page. It probably only had 10,000 followers, you know what I'm saying? And I just worked it and worked it and worked it and worked it. Now I got like 45,000, but it's like, they had it, but I didn't assume it was my job. Right? Like It's their job to get Blueprint followers on, you know, naively thinking that. Now I know, like, wait a minute, it's your job, sir. And whether it's podcasting, writing books, all of this stuff is just telling stories, you know, making movies. Like, all I'm trying to do is just tell stories, the job of a writer. So now I look at it like, you're just a writer. And every time you got something that's worth telling, it's up to you to decide the best medium for that.
0: Do you understand the level of gems that just got dropped in this conversation, people? Gems, big gems. Huge shout out. Thanks to Blueprint for appearing on the show. You can catch up with everything that he's got going on by visiting weightless.net. I'm loving the support that you guys are showing for Can't Knock the Shuffle. Be sure to rate and leave a comment on the show if you haven't done so already. Hit me up at cantknocktheshuffle at gmail.com and let me know who you want to see on the show next or connect with me at Sean Dammit S E A N D A on Instagram and Twitter and make sure that you also check out my hip hop game show and sort of hip hop media outlet the questions at the questions hip hop on instagram and twitch till next time peace